This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome back to your weekly podcast, Into England's Past. I'm Charles Rowe. Make sure you subscribe to get regular episodes every Thursday. Now this week we're tracing the series of events that led to the execution of King Charles I. The Stuart King remains the only British monarch to have been tried and executed by Parliament in one of the most infamous chapters of the English Civil War. Today we're picking up the story in January 1647, when the Scots handed Charles over to the English Parliament. And joining us now is properties curator Roy Porter and senior properties historian Paul Patterson to guide us through what happened next. Hello to you both. Hi there, how are you doing? So we have a, quite an exciting chapter in uh, the final story, really, of uh, King Charles I here. Paul, you're going to bring us in with uh, some facts and figures, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's quite a lot that's been happening up until this point. Can you give us a bit of a backstory to what has been happening up until this point with the English Civil War? Because I gather it's actually ended by this point. Yes, indeed. The war had been fought between 1642 and 1646. The whole thing was effectively over in 1645 after the Battle of Naseby, but a number of smaller conflicts carried on until mid-1646 when the king recognised that the game was up and actually formally surrendered. Mm -hmm. So he, he found himself in Oxford where he had established his court and from which city he'd been directing the royalist military operations during the war. He is at a loss as to what to do next. He's effectively lost the war and he wants to try and work out his future and what his options might be because hitherto there's no political settlement. What happens next was what he was thinking. And those options obviously involved negotiating with Parliament, which Parliament was reluctant to do. That's the English Parliament. He could have gone abroad, perhaps, into exile, which he also didn't want to do. But he had a third option because Charles I was also a King of Scotland. And although the Scots from 1643 had fought on the side of the English Parliament, Charles made the calculation that he might be able to get a better deal from the Scots or actually play one side off against the other because the options weren't straightforward and what the Scots wanted and what the English Parliament wanted were not the same. Can you tell us briefly what they did want, each of them, and why he thought he might get an ally in Scotland? Well, the war was fought over various political, social, religious and economic issues. The two main sides who had uh, defeated Charles, the Scots and the English, wanted very different religious and political solutions. In Scotland, they had a Presbyterian-style Calvinist church, a congregational church, which they wanted to keep. Charles obviously wanted a uniform church across the whole of England and Scotland. In England, there were religious issues as well, and the English Parliament was actually divided on what kind of religious settlement it wanted, because they were both moderates and radicals. And into the mix, there are political issues, and there were some really quite radical issues to sort out, because elements within the English Parliament actually wanted to get rid of the king altogether, whereas some of them wanted a political solution that suited both them and the king. So it wasn't straightforward. And within that very, very elaborate mix, there were possible avenues for the king to explore. 
How did Charles end up in the hands of Scottish parliamentary forces? He actually very quietly slipped out of Oxford and slowly made his way in semi-secret up to a place called Newark, where the Scots army had been fighting. And he basically hands himself over to the Scots, who then take him up to Newcastle with the rest of the army. And it's there that Charles begins to try and negotiate with the Scots and actually also with the with the English Parliament. But he's unsuccessful, isn't he? That's correct, yeah. There are a number of options, but the premium option that comes out of it is something called the Newcastle Propositions, a series of points which would have defined what the settlement was. Charles does a thing he does a lot in that he tries to play one side off the other and plays for time also attempting to get his way and to force disagreement between the English and the Scots. The negotiations drag on somewhat and the Scots become impatient. And when they realise that they're not going to get everything they want from the king, because they're also in financial trouble, I mean, the government is almost bankrupt because they need the subsidy that was promised to them by the English parliament when they joined the war. And eventually they tire of the negotiations and they make an agreement with the English parliament for a payment of £400,000 that they would leave England, take the army north and hand Charles over to them. So Charles wanted to do a deal with the Scots and um, instead the Scots have kind of gone against him and um, done a deal with his enemy, the English parliament. That's correct. But what you've got to remember is that the English and the Scots parliaments were fighting on the same side against him. It was a pretty difficult calculation for Charles to make, and it's something he does repeatedly, actually, tries to play one side against the other, often unrealistically. But if you think about his situation in the middle of 1646, after he'd been defeated in the war, he didn't have a great deal of options. And so he constantly plays this game of trying to exploit the weaknesses of each side so that he gets the best possible solution for himself. So he was really at the casino just running out of money effectively and just gambling and gambling until the game was up, really. I think that's the way he plays things. And as we shall see, he makes some further mistakes when perhaps there are opportunities for him, in a sense, to recover something of what he's lost. So just remind us where he's actually handed over to Scottish parliamentary forces. He's in Newcastle upon time. Right. Okay. And we know that he does end up back in England and goes to a number of places. So I'd like to bring in Roy at this stage, who's our senior properties curator. Roy, we know that Hampton Court Palace features soon in the story. At what stage does Charles come south and go to Hampton Court? Well, interestingly, the arrival at Hampton Court wasn't the planned destination for the king when he's handed over to the English. One of the key things to remember throughout 1647 is that increasingly there are tensions between the English Parliament and the army. And these tensions reach a point when the leaders of the army begin to become fearful about the way in which Parliament is negotiating with the king. And in fact, the reason why Charles ends up at one of his old palaces, Hampton Court, is because he's effectively kidnapped by the army. He is taken from Holdenby House, where he's being held under guard by the army, and taken south and taken to Hampton Court, where he's effectively a prisoner of the army rather than Parliament, strictly speaking. It's almost like a military coup that you might hear about in the news today. Very interesting you should say that, because I think, you know, as our story develops, um, increasingly we may come to the view that there is a military putsch going on. But at this stage, Charles is taken to Hampton Court. The thing really to emphasise is that he's treated incredibly well by the army. 
Uh, he spends about 11 weeks at Hampton Court. He enjoys incredible freedom whilst he's there. He's, he's free to enjoy the parkland around the palace. Instructions are given that the palace is to be furnished in such a way that the court can be housed there. He receives visitors. He's served by his personal servants. And remember, Charles's court was amongst the most formal in Europe. So you can imagine Charles being served by kneeling servants whilst he's eating. You know, to all intents and purposes, this looks like the king at court. And noblemen and gentlemen came to pay their respects to the king, including a certain Colonel Robert Hammond, who we're going to be learning a little bit more about. Uh, he's even allowed to worship at services, which, according to the Book of Common Prayer, which is very important for Charles. And not only that, it's whilst he's at Hampton Court that the leaders of the army come to him and present him with a set of alternative proposals to the Newcastle propositions which Paul was talking about. So an alternative settlement for the kingdom, which in actual fact was far more lenient as far as Charles was concerned than Parliament's proposals had been. Hmm. I think, Roy, this was one of the moments where if he'd taken the new proposals, he may have remained as king. I don't know what you think about hmm. that, but, but I think it was a golden moment which he missed. I absolutely agree, Paul. I mean, these were proposals, you know, whereby there was a time-restricted period in which he would have limited power. But essentially, they held out the promise of his being able to regain power, his successors regain power in the future. And certainly those close to him, or some of those close to him, including a chap called John Barclay, who again we'll be hearing about later on, advised the king that he really ought to say yes to this. But as you've already alluded to, Paul, Charles is a gambler. And, and as far as Charles is concerned, he's in a winning position because he sees the opposition fragmenting in front of him. And he thinks he can play off these various different parties. And by continually playing them off, he thinks he can gain better and better terms. Now, in retrospect, as you say, these were probably the best terms he was ever going to be offered. But for Charles at this point in time, he's interested in playing a longer game and hoping to get even more. That's really interesting. If this was a boxing match, it might be called the hubris at the palace or something. <laughs> uh, he just wanted to get the best deal for him. Do you think also, Roy, that he was fearful of the army? Because, uh, you know, as you alluded to, the the army had effectively taken over London, had they not? Yeah. And in many ways, the radical elements within the army were holding the moderates to ransom. And that the threat of the army must have been pretty large in Charles's mind. I think that's right, Paul. I mean, I, I think that that threat looms ever larger during the autumn of 1647. I mean, I think you've hit the nail on the head, really, that the it's the increasing or the perception of an increased radicalization of some elements of the army, which really influences some of Charles's decision making, particularly his decision to escape from Hampton Court to get away from the army and look, look, look for, for, for a safer place to stay. Again, we have to remember what's happening outside of the court at this point. So over the autumn of 1647, there are a series of debates held at the army headquarters, uh, relatively close to Hampton Court, just on the river at Putney. And within these debates, representatives of the soldiers refer to Charles as, as a man of blood. They speak of him as being a tyrant and a king against whom God has spoken. And this is pretty radical stuff. This isn't the sort of language which the, the army leaders, people like Cromwell and Ayrton, are using at this point. But there's a growing sense in which, amongst the rank and file of the army, that there is increased radicalization. And it's in that context that Charles receives an anonymous letter saying that there's a design against his life, that he's going to be murdered. And not only that, 
he receives a letter or he's shown a letter by the person in charge of the um, soldiers guarding him, Colonel Worley. And this letter is written by Oliver Cromwell himself, saying that he's aware that there's a design against the king's life. And it's when the king is shown these letters, he seems to have this uh, impulse to get away from Hampton Court, to get away from the army and find a safer place to go to. That's really I mean, interesting. I think mm. It is. I, I think we can afford to be a bit more, a little bit, a little bit cynical here as well, though. When you think about Charles's character and what he's, the game he's playing, the negotiations he's playing, everything Paul has said about how he's dealt with the Scots beforehand. I mean, from Charles's point of view, to be away from the hands of the army and parliament at this stage would give him freed, greater freedom to negotiate with other parties, including the Scots. That would be a distinct advantage, obviously. So I don't think it's merely the fear for his life. But those anonymous letters which certainly set in train the events which lead to Charles escaping from Hampton Court. And that's certainly the story he tells people. He tells he writes to the Speaker, the House of Commons, saying that that's the reason he left the palace. Was this not political game playing from the army saying, look, people want your head? So do you think it was genuine, well, the threat? The I mean, that's a really interesting question. And all sorts of suggestions have been made about the way in which Charles is treated at this time and whether or not his escape from Hampton Court was something which was allowed to happen because it played into the political game of the leaders in the army. You know, it's been suggested, for example, that the escape from Hampton Court was something which was masterminded by Cromwell because at a time when the army leadership may have felt it was losing control over the rank and file of the army, what better way of uniting those soldiers than to see the king escaping and really to rally them around the cause of actually holding the king to task in the future. That, that's one of the suggestions which has been made. As far as the letters are concerned, I think we can be fairly certain that the letter from Cromwell to Worley existed. He mentions it, he writes about it and, and tells Parliament about it. The anonymous letter which Charles received is generally thought to have come from a mem- actually a, a sympathetic high-ranking member of the army, in fact, although we can't be absolutely certain about that. So I think the letters certainly existed. The question is whether or not, as you say, whether the threat was quite as severe and as present as the way in which Charles presented it as a justification for his actions. And I like the fact that there's a lot of competing interests here, and there's a lot of gameplay potentially, isn't there, Roy? Absolutely. That's the whole point. I mean, you can imagine that, you know, a minority of people are being vocal about the king being tyrannical and therefore something having to be done about the king. The majority of people appear to be able to imagine no scenario in which you can't have a monarch ruling over England. I think that's fair to say, isn't it, Paul? They can't imagine a situation at this point, at least, where you don't have the king ruling with parliament. Therefore, from Charles's point of view, He's got everything to play for because as far as he's concerned, they can't do without him. Would you agree with that, Paul? I would absolutely agree with that. That's absolutely spot on. You know, there's this thing that Charles believed in, the divine right of kings to rule appointed by God, which a lot of people believed. So the prospect of a country ruled by in some other way was actually anathema to many people. Mm. Uh, And all the way through these negotiations, I am personally astonished at how people retain their faith in the king, despite his many duplicities and delaying tactics and secret negotiations. Speaking of secret negotiations, did he have any accomplices on this escape with him, Roy? Yes, he did. And their personal servants, their courtiers, essentially, 
There are three accomplices who are with him. There's William Legg, John Ashburnham and John Barclay. Effectively, they, they helped to smuggle him out of Hampton Court. I mean, it has to be said that he's able to do that because he knows the layout of the palace. The guards around the king are incredibly lax, if you like. And again, this is plays into this idea of the escape being almost too easy. I mean, that the way it worked was that Charles was in the habit of going into his closet to write letters on the, the afternoons and evenings of, I think it was Mondays and Thursdays each week. Mm-hmm. And it's on the 11th of November, which happened to be a Thursday. He, he tells people he's going to write some letters in his closet, locks the door from the inside. So the courtiers are outside the privy lodging where the king is writing his letters. And then at some point in the evening, around five o'clock, Colonel Worley turns up to take the king to chapel and then for supper, as was the king's practice. And he's told that the king is busy. So relaxes everybody that he doesn't become suspicious at all. He stands outside the king's rooms waiting to see what's going on. Eventually, he, he, he asks to be allowed to look through the keyhole to see if he can spot anything. And of course, he can't see anything. What he doesn't realize is that William Legg has taken Charles down the privy staircase, a back staircase in his lodgings, and then across the long gallery and privy garden at Hampton Court, where they've made their way to the River Thames. Um, they've gone to Thames Ditton. They've crossed the river at Thames Ditton. They've met John Ashburnham and John Barclay, and they've ridden off. And in fact, it takes around five hours for the king's escape to actually be discovered by his guards. He's got five hours advance on them when he leaves Hampton Court and rides off into the early evening. That's remarkable. And the staircase, well, lucky for Charles, but why on earth they gave him a room that had access outside? I guess we'll, we'll never know. The laxness is, is actually very surprising, considering that he'd slipped away from Oxford in 1646 in you know rather similar fashion there is some evidence that he attempted to escape from newcastle as well when he was in the company of the scots so so it is really surprising that this was allowed to happen Mm. we know that he goes to titchfield abbey next roy so how long does it take to get from you know the river thames to titchfield and just also give us some geographical context for people who don't know everybody has to remember this is charles's one successful escape so this is the one which goes right but it has to be said that as escapes go this was fairly farcical when you read the accounts which are given to us by ashburnham and barclay where both of them are trying to put themselves in the best possible light it's very interesting to see just how little had been planned out properly in advance i mean given that they've got the king's life in their hands as they're making their way from hampton court they set off southwest they ride into hampshire and they actually rely on the king to show them the way. The king is sure that he knows the way. Unfortunately, it's a stormy and wet night, and the king manages to get lost en route. They want to go down to Sutton in Hampshire, where there's a change of horses planned for them. And they end up getting there three hours late because it's taken them so long. And according to Barclay, at least, you know, as they're riding away from Hampton Court and through the countryside, they're discussing what to do next. There is no set plan. And at one point, it looks as if the king is expecting there to be a ship to take him away, perhaps to Jersey, perhaps to France. And he's surprised to discover that no ship has been arranged, much to the embarrassment, it seems, of, of Ashburnham. And so they have to decide where he's going to go to. And it seems that whilst the Isle of Wight had been a place which had been discussed as a possibility in the past, it wasn't the destination they were setting out for necessarily when they left Hampton Court. And it's en route that they decide they're going to make their, to try their luck at the Isle of Wight. And what the king does is he sends Ashburnham 
and Barclay off to the west to Lymington, where they'll take a boat to go across to the island, whilst he goes down to Titchfield, to the former Titchfield Abbey, actually called Place House by this time, which is the home of the um, Earls of Southampton. Right. And he basically says to Ashburnham Barclay, go and test the waters in the Isle of Wight and come back and tell me whether or not it's a safe place for me to go to. So he goes down to Titchfield and is essentially a clandestine guest at Place House. The Earl of Southampton himself isn't at home when Charles turns up. Interestingly, he had visited the King at Hampton Court some little time previously. He's, he's a known royalist. But the person in charge of the household at Titchfield was the Dowager Countess of Southampton. And unfortunately, what we don't have are any written descriptions of Charles's arrival here. I mean, it's, it's one of those great moments. You just wish somebody had been able to write down this moment where the rain-bedraggled King of England was knocking at the door of yeah. Place House looking for somewhere to stay. Uh, God um, knows what hour as well. Uh, God, precisely. Yeah, the early hours of the morning. Having to so essentially take him in, knowing that he must have escaped from his confinement and dreading the prospect of the army coming down at any moment, having followed the scent through Hampshire. So how long does he stay at the former Titchfield Abbey, at the Earl of Southampton's residence? Just overnight, because the next day, Ashburnham and Barclay come back from the Isle of Wight, having successfully, as far as they're concerned, tested the waters. And they come back with really the next key figure in our story today. It's somebody I've mentioned already, Colonel Robert Hammond, and I think Paul's going to be saying some things about him. Yes, Paul. So Colonel Robert Hammond, does he treat Charles as a prisoner or a guest during this sort of limbo period where he's deciding where he's going to go next? (laughs) Well, I think the royalist supporters of Charles who had arranged this or tested the waters, Ashburnham and Barclay, had probably misjudged the situation quite severely. Colonel Robert Hammond was a soldier in the New Model Army. He'd fought with distinction in the Civil War and he'd been made governor of the Isle of Wight. And his reaction to the visit of Ashburnham and Barclay is one of, I suppose, mild shock in that he regards it as something of a responsibility and a burden that he doesn't know whether he can bear it effectively. He describes himself as undone, as it were. He's on the back foot. He doesn't quite know what to do. Mm. Uh, And it seems that the royalists had misjudged Hammond's earlier slight sympathy towards the king's situation, I suppose, for instance, had spoken out against the extreme radical elements in the army. So he, he wasn't a person who was a shrinking violet. He had made his opinions known in the past, but in many ways, this was too much for him. And he kind of said as much. But what he agrees to do, he agrees to give the king his protection as an officer in the army. But he also, at the same time, informs Cromwell and Parliament that the king has actually turned up on the Isle of Wight, to the great relief of the parliamentary side, because they know where he is. They know he's safely in custody of a parliamentary officer. And effectively, he hasn't got anywhere to go. It's, you know, the island becomes a bit of a trap in a way. Yes. In actual fact, Hammond turned out to play it straight down the line, as it were. He didn't want the responsibility of the king being on the Isle of Wight. And the line he chose to take was one of caution to keep the king in close confinement, to show him due courtesy, to help where he could. But the king was going nowhere. So he was a prisoner then rather than a guest. Or was he a guest at uh, Colonel Robert Hammond's pleasure? (laughs) He was a prisoner, effectively. 
But I think Hammond did treat him with a certain amount of respect, although from surviving correspondence, we know that the king became increasingly frustrated by the strictures under which he was held in Carysbrook Castle. What were his lodgings like? Because obviously at Hampton Court Palace, he was very well looked after. It was almost like he was holding court at Hampton Court. But here we're talking about a trap, aren't we? An island trap. Well, Carysbrook Castle is obviously, it's a much smaller and less grand situation than Hampton Court. And it simply wasn't equipped to cope with the kind of courtesy and the kind of provision that Roy explained he'd been shown at Hampton Court. So at first he's allowed a small staff I think it's about 30, but that is gradually reduced. And so he's lodged in effectively an old medieval castle with a series of rooms that formed the former hall and chamber block of a medieval lord, effectively. So it's not all that spacious. From January of 1648, he is confined to the castle. Initially, he was allowed the freedom of the island to a certain extent, but that is curtailed at the order of parliament in the early part of the year. And so he's in a very small space. He is confined. He is a prisoner. How long did he spend at Carisbrook? He's there for almost a year, in in fact, just over a year, because he arrives late in 1647 and he doesn't leave the island until the December of 1648. So it's quite a long time. And does he also work on trying to save his bacon, continue to save his bacon and plot and scheme as the story continues. All the time he's allowed to write letters. They come and go fairly freely, but there's also a lot of clandestine correspondence being smuggled in and out. And also it's a situation where the people who are assigned to his household, some of them are of dubious loyalty. Some of them are closet royalists. Some of them are obviously parliamentarian. So he's in a situation where he's watched all the time and probably he is confiding in people that he shouldn't be confiding in and information about his intentions and those people he's corresponding with is getting back to parliamentary sources. So Mm. it's a complex, unnerving situation that he finds himself in. So Paul, out of the letters that have been going to and fro fairly freely, Is there any political planning on Charles's side that gives his cause a bit more hope? Yes, while he's in Carisbrook, uh, there's there's all sorts of uh, surreptitious planning going on. There is a network of spies and informers on both sides, both inside the castle itself and, and actually on the island and spreading into a network on the mainland up to London and as far as Scotland as well. And so... One of these strands is that the king does enter into negotiations secretly with the Scots and he makes a secret agreement which became known as the engagement, which actually ultimately led to Scots' involvement in a second civil war. But the meat of the agreement is that Charles agrees to some of those demands that the Scots had made earlier in Newcastle in return for for their support in trying to put him back on the throne. That's one thing that happens. But of course, the second thing that happens is that there's an awful lot of plotting that goes on again for Charles to escape his confinement in Carysbrook Castle. Ah, and is this uh, deliberate? They're trying to effectively spring him free from his trap so that they can really get hold of him. Yeah, he's, he's doing the same thing that he always did, was that, you know, he's, he's playing as many sides as possible. And one of the sides is to escape 
as Roy said, to some place where he can, with greater freedom, negotiate with all parties in order to make a better settlement for himself. And so we begin to get evidence of him corresponding with a number of people to free him from confinement and get him off the island. I, I think, Paul, that it becomes all the more important to do that because of the things you've just been describing. So the fact that he's entered into this engagement with the Scots, which means that, you know, as far as the Royalists are concerned, there's suddenly the, the prospect of a Scottish army coming into England on Charles's side, there's a real prospect that, you know, what will be the Second Civil War will end successfully for them. But really, in order to make the most of that situation, they want to have Charles out of the hands of Hammond and the army and free to lead those forces That's so right. that he's in the best possible position at the end of, of the second phase of conflict and, and able, hopefully, to march into London and be the restored king of the country and you know, restored politically in effect. So actually, there's a really, that, that, that thing you just described, the engagement, is so important because mm. from, for much of what happens to Charles at Carisbrook, he's responding to reports what's happening outside of the castle. But that engagement with the Scots was to have, in the end, catastrophic consequences for Charles, but to lead to the Second Civil War. And that decision is reached within the King's Chambers at Carisbrook Castle. Mm. Um, so, you know, it's a really important moment. As far as Charles' attempts to escape are concerned, we, we, we know that you know, there were several. He actually tried to escape or was planning to escape just after concluding the engagement with the Scots. He got as far as having a boat arranged to take him off the island. And we're told by one account that he was putting on his boots ready to leave the castle before it was placed under close guard. And he looked out of his window at the weather vane at Carisbrook. And by the time he'd put his boots on, the direction of the wind had changed and it would be no good for a ship to leave the harbour. So that put paid to that escape attempt. We know from intelligence sent to Hammond that there was a plan to cut a hole in the king's ceiling, the ceiling of his bedchamber, to put him up through the hole, to walk through the upper rooms of the apartments where there were no guards, and to then climb down and reach the curtain wall of the castle. But I have to say my personal favourite plan, <laughs> simply because it, it sounds so ludicrous, but it was genuinely given proper consideration, was that a conspirator, a royalist, would walk into Carisbrook Castle wearing a false beard, a huge hat, a blue coat, fustian coloured clothing under his cloak, and he's dressed outlandishly, purposely, to sort of sear, make an impression on the guards around the king. So they spot this guy and they can remember him. And the plan is that the king would have had smuggled into his rooms a duplicate set of ridiculous clothes, that the <laughs> king will dress up in these clothes and then take the place of this conspirator who will stay in the castle. And because the guards have spotted this man walking in and they all think he's you know, some sort of odd person, they won't raise an eyebrow at seeing him leave the castle again. They will have no idea that it's the king. And they do actually give serious thoughts of that. And although Charles himself is one of those who actually says, you know, he doesn't want to wear a false beard, you know, <laughs> how history could have changed if he'd worn the beard. But the, 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 two, the two attempts which were actually made and were less fanciful, um, pretty well known. The attempts where Charles had tried to escape in both instances from windows in March of 1648. And he gets um, stuck, doesn't he? He does. Yeah, he does. Now, this is despite the fact that he tells the chap who's helping him, a man called Henry Firebrace, 
that he's tried to get out the window before and he can get his head through and his shoulders through. He says, yeah, I, I can do this. I can get out. It's not going to be a problem. And on the night of the 20th of March, Fire braces down in the courtyard of the castle. And he's looking up at the king's window. And according to Firebrace, he throws some stones up at the king's window to let the king know it's, it's safe to come down. They've smuggled a silk cord into the king's bedroom. That's thrown from the window. And Charles begins to emerge from the window. What Firebrace says is that he hears a groan. And apparently <laughs> what the king later said to Firebrace was he was stuck between the breast and the shoulders. He couldn't get out of this window at all. After that, though, interestingly, Hammond is informed of the attempt to escape. Parliament's intelligence is such that they know that this attempt has been made. And Charles is moved to a more secure part of the castle against the curtain wall on the north side of the castle. But there's a bedchamber window in the curtain wall, and this becomes the object of the second escape attempt about two months later, on the 28th of May, I think. And this time, nitric acid has been smuggled into the castle and has been used to burn through the bars of the window to make the opening bigger. And the conspirators have taken the precaution of bribing three of the guard at Carisbrook so that they'll turn a blind eye to the king as he climbs out of the window and makes yeah. his way from the castle. And that ultimately is the undoing of this attempt because two of those bribed soldiers at the 11th hour go to Hammond and reveal what's happened. And interestingly, Hammond doesn't suddenly march into the king's rooms. He decides to allow the escape attempt to continue so that effectively he can catch the people involved on the job and make some arrests. But what happens is that one of those people, a man called Henry uh, Abraham Dowsett, walks into the guard and the password which they're using has changed. And so he becomes aware of the fact that the guards he had bribed are no longer around and able to turn a blind eye. And he basically then gets arrested and the king's attempt to escape isn't actually made. He doesn't even make it out of the window. But according to a newsletter at the time, Hammond then walks into the king's bedchamber and the king asks him, you know, what are you doing here? And Hammond says, ironically, I am come to take my leave of you for I hear you are going away. <laughs> and uh, that really was effectively Charles's last real attempt at getting out of Carisbrook. And these were all attempts. He was completely unsuccessful. How many attempts were there? Well, as I say, the two very well-known attempts of the windows, and we have accounts of various schemes being hatched and plotted, but really it's the two window events which are planned to the fullest and where there are various people outside the castle willing and able to help the king to escape because what they need to do is get him away from the castle to the coast to a boat and then from a boat to a, a safe destination and that means there's a whole network of people involved in these plots interesting that in our modern parlance we would say that the window of opportunity is closing and uh, <laughs> in, in charles's yeah. uh, situation it it already closed on him, really, because he just was too big to fit through. The really interesting part about this is that the network required, the complexity of the correspondence required to get it in and out of the castle with all these people who were involved in planning the escape attempts is amazing. It's absolutely amazing. A lot of it is done in cipher or in code. And so Charles himself has several different ciphers for several different people who he's corresponding with. And he has to put his correspondence into cipher when he writes to them and take it out of cipher when he receives replies. So it's a tortuous business. And of course, you also have to get these things in and out. 
And on occasions, it wasn't clear exactly who he could trust. This is where this woman called Jane Warwood comes into the equation. She had been a gentlewoman who had grown up close to the court in London in the early part of Charles' first reign. Her father had been a harbinger in the stables, uh, the royal stables responsible for arranging all kinds of, well, the whole of the king's transport, effectively, when he went anywhere. He died, and Jane's mother married another chap called James Maxwell, who eventually became Black Rod in Parliament, but he was also a bit of a fixer for Charles I. He was a man of great influence. For instance, he raised a lot of money for Charles I's cause in secret among merchants in London. And Jane, this lady Jane, a gentlewoman, grew up and made all these kind of contacts in her younger life. During the Civil War, she was something of a miracle worker in conducting money, mainly from London merchants who were sympathetic to the royalist cause, and smuggling it all the way from London to Oxford into the, the royalist headquarters at Oxford. So she was a really experienced spy. It's calculated that she smuggled millions and millions in gold using a network of laundresses who were serving the king at Oxford. And so by the time Charles is on the Isle of Wight, she actually follows him. And she's one of the main organisers of the correspondence that go to and from the castle to the people on the mainland who are masterminding these escape attempts. She is extremely careful and extremely skilled. And actually in the second, the second escape attempt, she seems to orchestrate quite a lot. And while this escape attempt is being planned, it actually takes a couple of months. It goes all through April and into May. She is the one who is waiting for the king, actually quite some distance away, on the River Medway in Kent. And she has managed to charter a ship which is waiting on the River Medway with herself aboard, waiting for the others involved in the escape attempt to get him off the island, take him across land with various changes of horses, and then whisk him off to Holland, I think is the plan. Ah. So this amazingly complex web of correspondence that goes backwards and forwards is one of the really interesting aspects of his time there. Some of it does survive, a small proportion of it actually, but enough for us to piece together, certainly this second escape attempt in some detail. Right, and before Charles moves to his next location, which is Hurst Castle, there's a couple of more developments that take place, aren't there? Well, while these escape attempts are going on, you remember this thing called the engagement with the Scots that is rumbling along, as it were. And eventually, this plan to free the king and for the king to regain his former position starts to come to some fruition. And actually, royalist uprisings begin in the spring and summer of 1648. People are pretty discontent. It's not just about the king, but it's about you know, the lack of a solution to this situation that they find themselves in. After four years of war and another two years on, there's no settlement. They're disillusioned. There's fear of the army and its radical factions. While some people are still loyal to the king, a series of things happen in the spring and summer of 1648. There's a naval revolt in the Downs off the Kent coast. There is a rising in northern Kent around Maidstone. The parliamentary side actually has to send a force of about 7,000 soldiers from the new model army to put this rising down. There's another rising which happens in Essex and it's joined by some of the Kentish royalists when they're defeated. And there's a rising in Wales as well, plus smaller rising elsewhere in the country. 
Against this background, eventually the engagement with the Scots comes to fruition and the, the Scots send a relatively small army of about 10,000 men south through the northwest of England. And eventually they come to battle with Oliver Cromwell at Preston and are defeated. Mm. So the whole thing actually peters out. It's intended to be much bigger than it is, but these risings are actually fairly comfortably defeated within a short space of time by the parliamentary army. Do we class that as the Second Civil War? That is the Second Civil War. And what happens then is that the gloves really come off and the victors, Parliament again, and the army are unforgiving of those people that were behind this Second Civil War. And some of them are summarily shot and actually put to death. I understand that there's also this thing called the Treaty of Newport. Roy, can you tell us about the uh, Treaty of Newport? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. You reach the point where the Royalist Army or insurgents have, have been defeated. But there is then a difference of approach in how you deal with the king subsequently. And for moderates within Parliament, what they still hope to do is to reach a negotiated settlement with the king. And the Treaty of Newport was a preliminary series of discussions to see whether or not the king would at last accept really those Newcastle propositions which Paul spoke about some time ago. And Charles has reached a point now where militarily his options have closed down. His support has been utterly defeated. He can see that. He's also emotionally exhausted by this stage. And what he ends up doing is making a whole series of concessions. And they're concessions which begin to surprise people who have been supporting the king. And what he says in private is that he's making these concessions because he wants to lower the guard of his captors so that they will basically literally keep a, a less severe scrutiny on him so that he can escape. He's still thinking of escaping. So even at this moment, at his lowest moment, the king is wheeling and dealing. He appears to be making concession after concession, but he's thinking about getting away from it all and not having to keep to his word, essentially. But in the end, things are decided for him extremely dramatically. Because for the second time, really, the army moves in and they close down negotiations. And this is when Charles is taken off of the island and he's taken to Hearst Castle. Now, for those people who know Hearst Castle, they'll know that this is a small Tudor artillery fort at the end of a shingle spit which juts out into the Solent. This is about as inhospitable a place as you can go to. And critically, it's also a place that nobody can get to the king unless the army let them. They now have complete control of access to the king. There's no opportunity for further negotiations mm. uh, at this point. And he's held there for about three weeks. And whilst he's held there, something really important happens in London. And the thing which happens is that the army leadership basically loses all confidence in the Presbyterian MPs in the Commons, the moderates in the Commons, who want to negotiate with the King. They've also rejected a document called the Remonstrance of the Army, and that document talks about the need to bring King Charles to trial on account of his being the author of the Second Civil War. They talk about him being guilty of spilling innocent blood. So that decision to have that Second Civil War is one which is now going to strike Charles down, essentially. And in London, on the 6th of December, Parliament is purged. There's this event known to historians as Pride's Purge, because a, a chap called Colonel Thomas Pride stood in the lobby of the Commons with his soldiers, and he stopped the Presbyterian, moderate MPs, from entering the chamber. 
and essentially a military coup is taking place. And one of the results of that coup is that the remaining MPs in Parliament were willing to support calls to bring the King to justice. And although it's not until the beginning of January that an ordinance for a High Court of Justice is set up, when Charles is moved from Hurst on the 19th of December to Windsor and then on to London, the writing is very definitely on the wall. And the interesting thing as well, I think, you know, when he's moved to Hurst Castle from Carishbrook Castle, that's not an escape. He has been moved and the walls are closing in, really. Absolutely. That's very much what's happened. He's, he's actually removed early in the morning before breakfast. Can you imagine that, moving the king before his breakfast? <laughs> um, he sort of rushed into his carriage. He's driven across the island and they take the ferry straight to Hurst. And yet Hurst Castle, you, I mean, if you think that Carisbrook was a come down for the king after Hampton Court. Just imagine what Hearst Castle must have been like. We have none of the trappings of royal court whatsoever. It's referred to as being a place like a dog hole for a soldier in one contemporary account. You know, at least at Carisbrook, they brought tapestries and furnishings from Hampton Court. At Hearst, he's basically left in a cold, windswept fortification where his only enjoyment is walking along the shingle spit and we're told that that was difficult for him to do in the shoes he was wearing this is a thoroughly miserable time so he's left in no uncertain terms yeah he's basically fallen in a big way and he's in trouble frankly yeah the game is really close to being over by this point certainly after pride's purge we know that he goes to windsor castle as well this is really when things start to wrap up in our in our story don't they yeah, he, he's taken to Windsor. In fact, ironically, he's pleased at the thought that he's going to Windsor because, he, of course, Windsor is a castle he knows very well. And, you know, who wouldn't be pleased to be going to Windsor after being at Hearst Castle? So, you know, he go, goes to Windsor. He's pleased at that. But it's just a matter of weeks before he's going to be tried in London. Paul, can you tell us a bit more about how the trial panned out? Well, as Roy said, the Second Civil War was the last straw in many ways. Parliament basically set up a High Court of Justice to try Charles I in the name of the people of England. And they appointed, I think it was about 135 commissioners were empowered to take part in this, but actually only about 68 would ever sit in judgment. But the crucial thing is that in addition to Pride's Purge, anyone who might be sympathetic to the King's cause was excluded from those commissioners. So this is a sure trial and it's a put-up job without a shred of a doubt. The intention is they're going to nail him, and that's actually what happened. He was accused of high treason against England by using his own power to pursue his personal interests rather than the good of the nation. And actually, they attached all of the guilt of the civil wars onto the king. And so the trial began on the 20th of January, 1649, in Westminster Hall. But Charles, ever obstinate to the last, sticks to his principles and refused to enter a plea, claiming that no court in the land had jurisdiction over a monarch. Hmm. His authority to rule was due to the divine right of kings given to him by God and by the traditions and laws of England when he was crowned and anointed as king. And that the power that parliament was wielding against him was simply that that they'd achieved through the use of force of arms. He insisted that the trial was illegal and maintained that the House of Commons on its own could not try anybody. And so he simply refused to plead. The court, however, challenged this idea of sovereign immunity and proposed that 
kingship was actually an office, not a person. It was an office whose occupant was given that limited power to govern by and according to the laws of England. Mm-hmm. It then proceeded as if the king had pleaded guilty. Witnesses were heard in the painted chamber rather than Westminster Hall, and the king wasn't even allowed to hear the evidence against him and had no opportunity to question the witnesses. And so it was all over, and the king was declared guilty on the 27th of January and sentenced to death. And his sentence read that he was guilty of the crimes of which he had been accused and that they did judge him tyrant, traitor, murderer, and public enemy to the good people of the nation. And then the death warrant was signed by, I think it was 59 of the original 135 commissioners. Sounds as though the uh, opposing side to Charles were bending the rules a little bit in order to get what they wanted, which is the same thing that they were accusing Charles of. Absolutely. I mean, and as Roy said earlier, they made up their mind that they were going to get rid of the king. The takeover by the army and the purge of the moderates was the writing on the wall. And the trial was just subsequent to that. It was the end of the game. It was fixed. The whole thing was fixed without a shred of a doubt. Yeah. So so in some respects, the uh, trial itself was the last war in the collection of civil wars, and it was the most uncivil of wars. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I suppose that's true. I mean, interestingly, I mean, the moral victory was Charles's, wasn't it, Paul? In the sense that here is a king who was noted for being a very poor public speaker, who, you know, when he came to Parliament, at the opening of Parliaments, would normally have his speeches read out for him because he, he suffered from a stammer and was seen as mm. being very aloof. Whereas at his trial, when he was able to speak, he spoke clearly without a stammer and delivered some very, very strong and telling points against the people who were trying him. Because as Paul said, they had to redefine the whole law of treason to make this work. Mm. They had to eff- effectively say, you know, redefine the whole constitution, claim that Charles is an elected king. When the House of Lords rejected the whole High Court of Justice, they said that didn't matter, that only the House of Commons mattered. I mean, that they are being absolutely revolutionary in this. Mm. What Charles mm. is able to do, quite remarkably, when he's effectively fighting for his life, he's able to present himself as the champion of the people. Because if a king can be treated in this way by arbitrary power, what hope is there for the lowest of his subjects? You could go so far to say that the whole thing was illegal, effectively, hmm. you know, accord- according to the laws of the time. Uh, w- what more can you say? He did, in a way, retain the moral high ground and conducted himself pretty well, I'd say. Mm. Yeah. But he was competing against people who were using his own tactics against him in a way, which was, yeah. uh, which was actually a miscalculation, another miscalculation, to play by the rules when uh, he wasn't really playing by the rules himself in order to get to that point. Yeah. What a strange, complicated story, really. So how long was the, tr- was the trial itself? It wasn't very long. It, I think it started on the 20th, I think, ended on the 29th. Mm. Right. Yeah, so it's about nine days. Hmm. And we know, of course, that he was summarily executed. Uh, we, we know that he lost his head, but how, yeah. how was the actual execution? Well, the, the, the actual execution happens very shortly afterwards, 30th of January. He's killed. And, you know, it's one of those great poignant moments. I think, you know, regardless of where um, one stands on Charles as a king, as a human being, the moment of his his death is one of the great poignant moments of British history. We know it's, it was a cold day that day. He decided that he would wear two shirts because he was concerned that he might shiver in the cold and he didn't want to be mistaken for shaking with fear. He'd spent the night before at St. James's Palace 
around 10 in the morning. He was walked across St. James's Park to Whitehall. And then, God, th- th- this is absolutely dreadful. He, he, he arrives in the morning. But then somebody realizes that, legally speaking, when a king dies, it's a requirement for his heir to be announced, for the succession to be announced. Huh. And of course, Parliament can't do that. And so they have to rush through legislation, or the Commons has to rush through an ordinance, which says they don't have to do that. So Charles has to wait for hours before being executed within Whitehall Palace. He's then taken through into the banqueting house, a building constructed by his father, taken out of there to a hastily built scaffold outside, where he gives a short speech, he lies down, and in a preordained signal to the executioner, he stretches out his arms, the axe falls, and with a single blow, his head is taken off. And almost immediately, the king's supporters regard him as a martyr. It's a fascinating turnaround by the end there. So how, how do we um, summarise Charles's experience? We talked about him being a man of hubris, a gambler, someone who was trying to manipulate and just do whatever he could, even though the chances were slim. But in the end, it sounds as though that we're sort of sympathising with him a bit. What, what are your views, Paul? I think we're sympathising with the solution to the problem of the contest between king and parliament. Nobody really played by the rules, did they? And in the end, the king made it really difficult for himself by the way that he conducted duplicitous negotiations, I think is probably how you'd describe it. And with the, the violence of the Second Civil War, the other side decided that they'd had enough and weren't going to play by the rules anymore. And that's effectively what happened. They decided they were going to get rid of the king. Mm. Yeah. And I think we talk about the king being, you know, sort of double dealing and not being trustworthy, which is derogatory comments to make about him. The flip side of this is that Charles is a man of principle. And what you have here is a clash of different principles, different conceptions of where authority should lie in the kingdom. And for Charles, from his point of view, he has sworn a coronation oath to uphold the laws of England and the church of England. That's one of the things which he deems to be under attack during the Civil War. And he regards the people fighting him as rebels and traitors. They are not principled opponents. They are rebels and traitors. And to the end, that's the view he holds. And that's, I suppose, where the tragedy lies in this situation. That on both sides of the conflict, there were principles and being maintained and held, but there were principles which, in the end, couldn't be negotiated, couldn't be met. And what you end up with is this chilling situation where brute force ends up killing the king. I think that's true. And I, I think also that, that there has been perhaps a tendency in the past among historians to look at this from the parliamentary point of view, because eventually it led to the, the style of government that we have today. And so in effect, by default, the king is in the wrong. And I don't think that's the case at all. I think it's the job of historians to look at this in the round and, and to make the conclusion that you've just come to, Roy, that actually it was a clash that was always going to happen because there were two different styles, two different aims coming together. And there was only one way it was going to end, really, because both sides held such strong principles and it was going to end with one side winning and the other side losing. So lastly, Paul, the lasting significance of the Civil War and this this period, you've just sort of touched on it a bit. That it's the legacy of the situation that we have uh, with the way that we're governed today. Well, yes. I mean, what happens next is that there's a period called, broadly speaking, called the Interregnum, when there's no monarch, for 11 years. 
even then the motivations of the winners parliament were varied and it proved pretty impossible for them to reconcile the various political religious and social differences between the various factions that were formed in parliament and in the country but also they were really unable to satisfy the people the people of england that they were a better alternative to a monarch so england scotland wales and ireland didn't really become a republic despite genuine efforts i think on the part of some people at forming a new constitution frustration at the lack of progress in those 11 years led to what was effectively a military backed oligarchy taking over and ruling the country held largely together by the authority and the will of one person that's oliver cromwell religious toleration except of catholics of course was practiced but it was accompanied by a pretty strict social and moral code that many people simply didn't want and the failure of this new regime this attempt at a new form of government is evident in the way it crumbled pretty quickly after oliver cromwell's death and actually the ease with which a new king charles ii was restored in in 1660 but of course there was a political legacy beyond that i mean the reigns of charles ii and especially of his successor james ii up to 1688 did witness continuing political tension between the monarch and parliament james ii especially attempted to exercise similar absolute authority and met with similar parliamentary opposition and eventually he was deposed in 1688 and new monarchs invited from abroad hmm. they agreed william iii and mary agreed to a new document called the bill of rights in 1689 which was a series of measures that ensured the monarch could not suspend laws raise arbitrary taxes make arbitrary royal appointments or maintain a peacetime army without parliament's permission these measures actually had their roots in the civil wars and the various negotiations that took place during the civil wars even if 1689 is considered the true beginning of what we regard as a constitutional monarchy and the long slow rise of parliament as the main instrument of power in the land <laughs> You've been listening to the English Heritage podcast. If you want to find out more about the history of Titchfield Abbey, Hurst Castle, or Carisbrook Castle, please go to the English Heritage website. And don't forget to join us next week when we'll be back to discuss how Napoleon Bonaparte left his mark on England's heritage on the bicentenary of the French Emperor's death. Thanks for listening. See you next time.